0: Hello, Katerina. Hello, Jake.
1: Hi, Victoria. Sorry, I was making the topics and you cannot unmute while you...
2: No, no, no problem.
1: (laughs) Do you like the topics? Because it's about AI, crime signs.
2: Yes, I do. I just wish that the gun didn't have to point at the brain, Oh, (laughs) but I like the topics. (laughs) There's always a critic. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. (laughs) For once they have topics we need. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Such an important subject.
1: Yes, I agree. It's very important. I'm happy somebody is doing research about it.
2: Oh well, yeah. yeah, I have to look at this at the slides. I'm I'm just curious if it's about you know, the error inherent in the facial recognition situation and, and um Oh, what is the company who makes those? Uh, who does that and is so responsible for so much? So many people being arrested falsely. P. Is there, I'm gonna look it up. Palantir, that's who it is that I was thinking of. They have a huge contract with uh, law enforcement. Oh, thank you. But I also know that companies have stopped using that just because of inherent error.
1: Yeah, thank you for looking that up. That will be a great question later. Thank you.
2: yeah i couldn't find it i had to i had to look it up in my brain (laughs) just sit for i couldn't i couldn't actually locate it googling it
1: Hi everyone, we'll start in around seven minutes. Thank you for coming. And um, as you can, um, let me share the paper actually to the chat. And this research is concerned about, um, I use AI to analyze how biased uh, law enforcement is in the US and uh, show some really interesting data Um, and you can I just shared in the chat the actual um, article and um, yeah this uh, really interesting um, slides that our guest speaker um, shared with us to present today Um, yeah thank you for coming
0: Okay,
2: all the sharing. Welcome Lisa, Albert,
0: Hector. Welcome
2: Kenny. Nice to see everyone here. Hello, Jen. Yeah, I agree, Lisa. We're really looking forward to hearing about research in this topic, predicting crime, recognizing bias. Hopefully saving lives of innocent people who are wrongfully
0: convicted. Ishanu, welcome to Clubhouse. Hi,
1: welcome. Um, the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right. There's a little microphone button. Yeah. You you got it. There. How are you today? Thank you for coming.
3: Good, good, good. How no are you guys?
1: Good too. Thank you so much you Enjoying your summer a little bit?
4: Uh,
3: I, I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry for asking that. <laughs> we appreciate honesty all the same, we're here to support.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not that bothered by the cold. I, I spent like a, a lot of time in upstate New York, um, at Ithaca, and uh, yeah, those places, though it gets really cold there compared to Chicago. So, uh, yeah, in fact, it's too hot sometimes here. So, yeah, it makes not that much difference to me, at least.
1: Also, the heat wave uh, was also in Chicago or is also in Chicago. I don't know.
3: Yeah, but yeah, but I, my job doesn't require me to stand around in the sun, thankfully. So again, not that much doesn't change much too many things. That'll be bad. Yes. It it gets really hot. Yeah. It gets to like 110 degrees. Um, Yeah. It gets to that. And July is almost always like that.
1: Yeah. When I first moved to the US, I was really surprised how hot it is in the US. Like, I was so ignorant when I first moved to as a phd student i was really very ignorant about the us engine like you know what you see in movies but yeah uh, and it's, and it's really
3: cold too right it, there's a whole range of stuff like chicago gets really hot 120 degrees and we also have the the polar vortex which ha- doesn't happen every year but if it does happen that that's like that i mean it it, it will it wasn't it was an experience so they they said it would it would be really cold um don't go to work and stuff I thought, how cold can it be? Let's, uh, come on, not go to work because it's cold. And I had to park my car, cross the street, and get inside the building. It was horrible. It, my, it, it, I felt my face was kind of peeling off. It was like minus 50 or something. Uh, so, it, yeah, it also gets cold, really cold in some, some of these places. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not just the absolute temperature. It's like if, if, it, if the wind picks up, that's what kind of gets you. I mean, it definitely snows more in the northeast. There's no question
2: about that. Yeah, it's. Uh, sure reminis- because- oh, sorry. I just want to thank you for helping us reminisce about the polar vortex. It's a great thing to think about right now.
1: Yeah, I was more surprised about this crazy, um, yeah, heat here in New York City in the summer, like the humidity. Actually when I first moved to the US I was Duke University and I moved in August. <laughs> that, was, that was so crazy hot I didn't I didn't realize how hot it was and then even the rain didn't make it better it made it worse actually sometimes so anyways um, yeah uh, yeah'll uh, we'll, we can actually start. it's already night. I didn't realize. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Welcome everyone to the Science Society, and a special welcome, of course, uh, to you, Ishanu. And I hope I'm saying your name right. Please correct me if I yes, you
3: are. You are.
1: Perfect. No, well, we we're still getting to your last name. <laughs> to introduce you uh, to the audience, let me give you a little bit on. Uh, of information about our guest speaker here today, everyone. Um, Professor Chetulpati, is that right? <laughs> um, he uh, his research uh, focuses most on um, algorithmic principles, um, uh, analyzing large scale data, and um, he is particularly interested in. Um, where minimal human intervention is desired or needed and um, where also the expertise of the domain is, is really low. And um, he had, he did his master's degrees, and in, two master's degrees, one in engineering and one in mathematics and his PhD in engineering from Penn State. And he did then later on his postdoctoral training in computer science and engineering um, at the Cornell University. And then later he joined the faculty at UChicago in 2016. And the lab has uh, been funded by the Department of Defense, um, NIH, and the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and uh, Dr. uh he won um, the prestigious one fac- Young Faculty Award uh, from the Defence Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, in 2020, for his work on formal methods to study cognitive dissonance and opinion dynamics. Yeah, so uh, we are very honoured to have you here today and before we start, um, if it's OK with you, um, Victoria would ask you a couple of interview
2: questions, and then we go into your presentation. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Katarina.
2: Yes, thank you, Katarina. Thank you, Shanu, for being here. I won't ask you how you've been enjoying your summer, then, since we've already covered that. <laughs> and it led us to a uh, unpleasantness. Um, Not really. Okay. So to carry us into your discussion tonight, though, I just have a few questions to help us get to know you a bit, because it's interesting to learn about people's connections to science. So if you could reflect on your life, and if you can think of a time or the time that you started um, noticing that you felt a strong connection to sciences, if that's true for you.
3: Oh, that that's (laughs) yeah, that's a loaded question. So um, to tell a little bit about myself, I was born and born and grew up really uh, in India, Uh, actually, uh, when Katarina was talking about the New York weather, when I first came to this country, which was about now 22 years about so I, I, was, I was kind of greeted by exactly the same weather which I was accustomed to back where I grew up in Calcutta, which is a, a eastern part of India, It's the same kind of heat. Uh, we are also on the coast, so that humidity and everything. so so yeah that's that goes back there. G- growing up, uh, I was pretty much always interested in science. I kind of knew that uh, that's what I would do when I grew up. I was going to be a scientist which everyone was always making fun of, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do science. Um, and um, I got into, well, uh, there's a distinction perhaps to be made between uh, basic science, or science as we call it, and engineering. They they overlap a lot, of course. But there are some differences in what is the key questions people talk about or in- investigate or do in those areas like science versus engineering. So I went into engineering because that's what you do if you are in India. Uh, and uh, if your parents have any say in what you are going to do, uh, and if you can pass the entrances, which are um, incredibly difficult to say the least. And um, so if you can make it through that, then basically you have to go into either engineering or medicine this is really, I mean, unless you want to kind of, uh, really uh well it doesn't work generally uh, that's what you do you get an engineering that's what i did um didn't quite like the standard engineering stuff like just making stuff uh wasn't quite satisfying to me i was always interested in doing actual uh more into, into investigating questions that we do not know the answers of rather than taking some principles that we know and making the best out of it making things out of it which um probably is uh, not the best way to speak of engineering, but it's kind of on the on those lines. So I, um, <clears throat> when I came to this country in US, for my uh, master's PhD, uh, it was still in engineering. And but I was working on uh, robotics, planning algorithms, and stuff like that. And I started kind of moving away from um, engineering applications to more fundamental questions. And for me, how that happened was um, going from well, we are in the engineering department, we're going to make robots that do interesting stuff, then let's think about how to make robots uh, or in, like artificial systems do intelligent stuff. And from there, kind of, like think about the mathematical principles underlying AI, uh, how far can they go? What are the differences between, uh, or how do you basically make something intelligent and what that means in general? Um, So worrying about or thinking about those kind of questions, Um, moved to Cornell for my postdoc, where essentially I was still about half and half between engineering and CS, but really what I was working on was uh, this, intelligent decision-making and stuff like that. And uh, when I joined UChicago, which was kind of interesting because my home department is medicine. So really what uh the reason i got hired was to look at complex data problems in social sciences in medicine which typically uh, we don't know the answers to those things but we have lots of lots of data about them and it's also often not clear how to analyze the data like you just can't throw a standard machine learning approach to it and solve it so you have to kind of think about um think about how to think about data Right. So that's that's what I'm kind of interested in, like large, complex systems which um, have this uh, very interesting transitions, uh, extreme events um, and rare events occurring in them, but are nonetheless very, very important for uh, us, for all of us, like weather systems, extreme weather or seismic activity or social interactions. upheavals in financial systems. So no matter matter where you look, uh, you can see this kind of really complex systems with thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of variables which are uh, interacting, uh, producing different patterns and has this kind of rare extreme transitions which affect uh, human civilization at a deep level. So one of the goals that I have is to understand systems like this. How do you go about studying this kind of things? Uh, it is, again, not just a matter of firing up uh, your TensorFlow machine, machines to uh, do it. Because many of times we don't know um, what questions are of interest. What is it that we're supposed to do with this data? What is it that we're supposed to predict? We don't know what factors are interacting in what ways uh, to produce some of the things that we see. Uh, are of interest. So that's what I'm interested in. That's that's the kind of science that I do, not in one particular domain, but really thinking about uh, how to analyze, how to um, make data tell its own story. And uh, in my recent work, I have applied this, or I have kind of uh, tried to see um, how to take this further in actually in, in many different directions. One, uh, a couple of them is looking at um predictive diagnosis and complex diseases uh for example we had a screening tool that we came up with for autism we're doing some work on uh, alzheimer's um or diseases that are really uh quite terrible but we do not know what exactly causes them for example idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that's one of the papers that's going to come come out soon and also things like like crime like social interactions which um incidentally got uh, kind of everyone got really interested in when this paper came out Um, so yeah so that's kind of probably uh, a good way of describing what i do and what are the kind of how i think about what i do
2: thank you and and i think you've also answered the question that i was i was going to ask you next is if you could bring us up to your current research and and you really have because when you're talking about studying complex systems and how they interact and not Um, the the challenge of not knowing exactly what questions to ask. I'm I'm curious if you have developed some kind of uh, algorithm or or a paradigm question paradigm to follow when you address new new questions or new. Yeah, thanks.
3: Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about this, right? If you don't know what you what is it that you're asking, how do you even answer it when that's like a (laughs) that's kind of seems to be a trick question Um, so if you take it uh, to think about it more concretely so we have this very sophisticated machine learning algorithms that have come up in recent years they were around for some time actually but it was not really useful to have them around even when I was in Cornell which is not too long back the reason was it couldn't really run them it couldn't run them at a level at a scale that Uh, someone could, unless you have like, I I don't know, half a million dollars to spend on a cluster. Um, But now things are really cheap, Computation is really cheap, so you can run all of those things really well. You can basically take huge amounts of data, make predictors out of them, great. But it doesn't, one of the things that people don't quite think about, unless you are very much into this, is uh, standard machine learning tools, almost all of them, you need to know, you need to select the features. I mean, there is, if there are machine learning people in the audience, some of them is going to have a pushback on that. But it doesn't matter what you, how you define where you're doing a selection. It's almost, there's always a selection involved. And um, that kind of, often, at, at least in medicine, at least in the questions which we would like to solve in medicine, has an issue with that. Uh, and where I'm going with this is, if you don't, uh, uh, Like just kind of analyzing or just using standard machine learning tools sometimes isn't enough when you're applying it to more general domains beyond where they were designed for, like language analysis, great. machine learning algorithms were pretty much designed for that or image classification, that's great too. But when you ask questions or when you want to say that, what is the future risk of a child getting diagnosed with autism, right? Uh, And if you are only looking at the information that physicians already look at and then build a machine learning model to replicate the physician's decision, then you are basically modeling the physician. You're not really modeling the disease. So if you want to know, uh, if you can do something more where it will, one, tell you something, raise a flag before a human physician will be aware of this, that's one. That would be great. That would be great. Now, to do that, you have to understand something more about the disease than we already do. So that's kind of on the line of, ask, of trying to answer questions that we have not yet thought about asking. Right? So, for example, there are risk factors, and autism is just one example. If you take other examples like dementia or certain cancers, any kind of complex disease where it is not really driven by one or a few genes or few environmental factors, right? It's like a, a, a huge number of fact, unknown and uncharted factors that come together to have something like this. Um, then it's not always clear that we not actually it is very clear that we do not know all the risk factors involved or whether the risk factors interact in uh, different ways than we think they do to modulate the future risk. So that's like we don't know about those things. Uh, therefore, you cannot really have features that track those. We probably won't think about that and uh, so if, if that's the input that you start with and you come up with or use a, a sophisticated machine learning tool you will kind of um, and again this is uh, an exaggeration but you'll almost always uh, you'll, you'll almost always do worse than a human physician who has been looking at the problem for the last 20 years so can we do better that, that's the question can we actually uh, answer or look for or, or reveal information that is not yet known are obvious. So to do that, what you have to do is look, is basically do uh, pattern discovery, not just come up with solving classification problems. And again, this is not like a blindingly new idea. I mean, people generally in the field generally understand that, that there's a difference between pattern classification and pattern discovery. So, but one thing is understanding that is an important way of looking at things, Other is being able to do it because it becomes an incredibly difficult problem. If you don't know where the features are, how do you even use it? And how do you find interactions between them? So that's kind of one of the things that we uh, pursue in our research group. And uh, this particular algorithm for crime prediction, recognizing bias is really a spatial application of a more general framework, which is for modeling and forecasting rare and extreme events. And um, we are looking into predicting extreme weather events um, seismic activity and all that. So it's like we're trying to see. It doesn't always work as well in every application. It has to do with to what degree a particular system is actually predictable, right? If you're trying to predict the outcomes of a coin toss, then it doesn't matter how sophisticated modeling you're using, you'll not be able to do it because it's a truly uh, completely unpredictable process. Um, so, But not but systems actual physical systems are not like that. There is always some predictability which might not be obvious. So what the way we are kind of uh, trying to approach this is coming up with or formalizing a general set of methods or algorithms that look at this kind of historical data, figure out what are the patterns that are uh, that allow you to predict such events in future, and do this without with, with making as small a set of assumptions that you can Right. So you don't want to assume the kind of models you don't want to assume how much memory the system has you don't want to assume how far the influence of a particular event uh, spreads either in time or in space and um, based on that we bring out those we learn those dependencies and we can't we cannot learn all the dependencies that are out there most of the time we will not have enough data even with terabytes of data it's still not enough for many of these complex systems so we will never uh, have all the dependencies that exist but the but, the issue, but the, rather the kind of the position is, can we detect enough number of them and uh, validate enough number of them, and then we put them together into this really amazingly complex models, um, which are not really good for human insights or human kind of interpretation directly, but actually makes pretty good predictions uh, for in the future, and actually kind of um, uh, goes towards this idea of digital twins. So now you have a system, now you have a really complex model which um, is not that transparent to direct human insights, but you can push and pull at it, perturb it, tug and pull at it, and see how the system is behaving and get your sense of understanding from there, if that makes sense.
2: Absolutely, yes. So we're getting not only um, information about tonight's topic, but also, as you were saying, the algorithms to handle our questions and and so I would like to just completely get out of your way right now and Pass you back the mic. We have your PDF pinned at the top so people can follow along if you'd like to go by that And also if you would like to have a Q&A following your discussion or if you'd rather that questions um, Help drive your discussion. That's fine, too. Uh, we are here to assist you um, actually to handle that and also sometimes Um, people will put questions in the chat, which we can let you know about. So that's, um, you don't have to have any of that on your mind. So um, just thank you to all the friends who are here and ready to listen. And um, Ishanu, thank you so much. And also welcome, Dr. Shah. And um, the mic is yours.
3: Thank you, Victoria. Um, So yeah, maybe uh, we can hold the questions uh, till the end, um, unless you really want to ask something. And and yeah, we can absolutely have a Q&A. Uh, after, and I'm 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 going to keep it short because most of the at least some of the points I already touched on on this. So uh, we we had this paper come out on predicting crime and recognizing bias in law enforcement, and um, not really unexpected. People, it is something that people think about a lot. It affects people's lives, so um, it was uh, it got a lot of attention, and we're going to talk about that a little bit so uh yeah you can you can follow along the slides uh they should change by themselves as i talk about it
0: excuse me a second Uh, okay
3: so um yeah so crime is a minded yeah
2: yeah if people are following so i guess um if you're following um concurrent to this discussion maybe on a second device or this whatever but yeah mine mine did change okay usually yeah okay great thank you mike is back to you so
3: so crime is i mean this is kind of a completely superfluous slide crime is obviously uh, a matter of great importance but before i saw these numbers i didn't quite realize that homicide actually is one of the leading causes of death uh in uh, younger or yeah, more or less young people. Now, so that's important. To be able to do something, anything about it uh, is obviously important, but it's kind of a sensitive issue. And we'll talk about that in a a moment um, because, well, there are a lot of ways uh, good intentions can go wrong when you try to uh, come up with predictive tools in this space. Now, the thing about crime is the broad patterns are actually very predictable. We know crime goes up in summer, goes down in winter, goes up during the weekends, goes down during the week, and you can also see long-range patterns, as you can see uh, on the slide. I mean, there are 1920s at high crime, 1950s at low crime, 1980s, and I mean, it's almost a perfect sine wave, and we are at the top of the sine wave. So if you go by the pattern, it's not really that unexpected um, that we have high crime <clears throat> here and around the world, really. Um, so, so one of the questions that come that came up repeatedly when I was talking to different people about this particular work is um, why is this a non-trivial problem to start with? Isn't, for example, if the broad patterns are predictable, isn't that enough to predict uh, to do what we are saying we are doing? Um, Well, well, no, I'm I'm coming to that that in a moment. Just because you can predict the broad patterns doesn't mean you can uh, actually predict individual events, right? The other point that comes up is uh can't you just can't you just look at hotspots of crime and uh, that's the same thing you just look for where there's more crime um so something like this uh without any context there are just hotspots. just find them and that's it doesn't really work if you look at this is an example of uh locations of uh severe property crimes and severe violent crimes in two weeks in April of 2017, so April 1 to April 15 in 2017. So those are, those two weeks, right? And this is not, it's not that Chicago is particularly bad. Uh, this would be typical for any city, really. We d- often don't realize this. It's still, crime is still a rare event, by the way. But even then, you have really a lot of incidents. So to say that uh, there would be a um, homicide next week in Chicago, we can predict that without any algorithm, yes, sure, you can. And it might, the city might look like a dot when you, in Google Earth, when you zoom out, it's still a big place. And the city doesn't have enough resources to act on that by just saying there will be, I mean, what we, what are we going, that's not an actionable uh, information. Are, are we going to post police officers at every corner of the street? I mean, yeah, you don't want to even do that. That will not probably be counterproductive. And uh, so it doesn't really help to say there'll be some uh, crimes or events, criminal infractions happening next week doesn't, have, doesn't work, help, there are too many events like that. Also looking at hotspots doesn't really work and has not worked in the past. There are there a lot of efforts, a lot of papers that came out on predictive policing. I feel there's always a new version of it coming out um, every six months. And the reason is well, many of those things don't really work is the idea of hotspot detection is not really, uh, that's not how crime works. So if you think about hotspot, it's like putting ink in water. The ink kind of diffuses out and you think about uh, there is an event happening somewhere and the influence kind of diffuses out and is uh, increasing the odds of crime in surrounding places. But that's not how crime works. If someone's house is broken into today, the chance the odds of their house being broken into again tomorrow uh, is probably less, not more. Same with homicides and stuff. Unless you're in a war zone of some kind, uh, if you have a severe crime happening, it's probably, uh, may, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's gang activity of some sort, uh, maybe increases the likelihood of the events or in general, actually maybe reduces the likelihood of events near, um, near in space and time of uh, past events. So you, you don't know. You can't make that assumption. That's a point. And what happens, and the reason why this happens is <clears throat> there is a social topology that wires urban spaces right there are bus routes, there are transportation networks, so that two locations which are physically far apart might be actually close in this social topology so unless you actually take account of that you really. uh, can't make good predictions or actionable predictions and past uh, methods past past approaches didn't quite go as far as to kind of taking those things into consideration. So now now, uh, we we have lots of data uh, to to kind of see, try out all of our ideas in in most of things, not just crime. And um, in this kind of study, we we made a conscious decision of using only data from the public domain. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is we did want to make a predictive system that not only is fair, but has a perception of fairness. So uh, Chicago PD has, uh, forayed into predictive policing multiple times and their latest effort was to come up with a secret list of who is going to be, they think, who is who is predicted to be a perpetrator or a victim of gun violence. And they used an equation to uh, basically figure out which individual should be on the list. And, and that was terrible. And the list was secret, by the way. So when the list was initially revealed after a legal battle, it showed about Some some ridiculous number, like fifty percent of the black population was on the list, and basically what it was doing is is it was using things like who who was arrested in the past for some uh, not like trivial thing, and their likelihood of getting in the uh, doing a violent crime went up. Right. So I don't think there was any malice as uh, per se in doing that, but the point is that if you look at a complex system uh, like this and you boil it down to an equation, then you will get this kind of nonsensical results which at that point is no longer an academic result because it affects people's lives so so what can we do when we have huge amounts of data that we have accessible right now in the public domain uh chicago for example puts out this log of events which kind of tells you what happened the latitude longitude of a particular event um what kind of crime it was what kind of immediate response uh there was whether in arrests or not um And you have this kind of data for many other cities, seven other cities in the U.S. that we looked at. Uh, So what can you do with it? Uh, And we're going to talk about the different issues of even the data there. I mean, it's not there are biases built in there, which we cannot really take out. Uh, So that is that. There is that. But at least what we can do is not not put in more biases, right? Maybe we can um, not try to make an equation saying which individuals will commit a crime that probably is a bad idea, but we can actually see this, uh, this data set as this uh, uh, like a snapshot or or like a uh, a video, if you may, of this uh, spatiotemporal process, a process that is kind of unfolding on cities, which has these events coming out, and try to model that. So our approach is not to predict that one individual is going to commit a crime or one individual um, is at a high risk. It's not about individuals at all. It's about, Uh, If you take tiles on the city, uh, small special tiles, say a couple of blocks across, then can we predict if there will be events, severe crimes, property crimes, assaults, homicides in those tiles sufficiently ahead in future and with sufficiently sharp uh, uncertainty bounds so that that becomes uh, useful and predictable and actionable, right? So that's kind of the objective, not do it at at the level uh, of individuals, but uh, solve this as a a spatiotemporal predictive problem, a prediction problem. And uh, so why does it work? How can how can you ever predict what's going to happen in future? That's one of the questions that I am asked. I'm I'm quite surprised that that is isn't a question, but it is. And if you think about it, if you are not um, familiar or exposed to uh, modeling or, or science, um, then that might be something something uh, strange. But it should not be strange uh, in science, right? Science is about coming up with models that tell you about things, about uh, aspects of a system that you have not yet observed, right, or maybe something to that, to, to that extent. So that, the idea is that not everything is predictable, of course, so you cannot really say with 100% accuracy what's gonna happen at the intersection of two streets uh we can we can advance that's not going to work there is not everything is predictable There, there is obviously an unpredictable uh dimension to it but then also it is incredibly difficult for things to be perfectly random unless you're talking about a dice that you're rolling or a coin fair coin that you're tossing um it's incredibly difficult to be perfectly random which means there's always some predictability built in that any kind of system and these are complex systems which means there are lots of dependencies at different time scales, different spatial scales, and all those dependencies actually constrain the future, which means if you can understand that, if you can model that effectively, you will have a, a better-than-random uh, chances of predicting what's gonna happen in the future. And that's what we do, really. Find and use patterns that predict those events, and we basically have to validate that those patterns are actually predictive, right? And Really, the idea behind it is quite simple. Uh, it's like when you see dark clouds in the sky, uh, you correctly infer that it might rain in near future. And the reason why that is a correct inference because you have seen that happen many times in the past. And um, so that that's that's why that that prediction works. We're pretty much doing the same thing, except our patterns are more subtle and uh, you have to validate those things. So you have to make those connections, between it clouds, to rains, and here our patterns are more subtle, from there, what those patterns say about the future. But really, that's, that's what, what we are doing. Now, applying this to crime, and I talked to Victoria about how this is really about predicting rare and extreme events and complex systems, uh, but crime, predicting, trying, to, trying to talk about crime in, um, in any, uh, any kind of community or any environment, uh, city or otherwise, has its own issues. One is the data is always kind of biased, right? You see more crimes where you see more enforcement. And uh, diverse communities, uh, minority communities have always seen more policing, which means that some crimes are uh, reported more there in the in the books, there are more crime there, and there's less crime perhaps in uh, other communities and that might be a reflection of this differential policing and biases built in in the system rather than actual what's happening in the ground so there's always that you're never really observing the actual crimes happening you're, you have only access to uh what is reported so that is there definitely there's nothing we can really hard to counter that but and we talk about how we try to address some of those issues so there is that and um uh, that, so 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 what we did was to kind of um, try to model the systems the best we could um, and try to reduce the effect of these biases. That's, that's one. The other thing that comes out of this is that if you have a very good predictor, you can basically see, you can use that as like a very high fidelity simulation system and can do these experiments on it, which you won't be able to do in the real world. And that will then tell you if there's a deviation from uh, a scenario where there's no uh, Biased response to crime versus what you see. So that's how you can actually look for enforcement biases. That's what we talk about uh, in the study. So, so that's the paper. It was kind of uh, we were kind of surprised how much uh, uh, basically how how much people talked about this and is continuing to talk about this. I mean, it's important, uh, but it's kind of interesting that it's going it's going on and on forever, and uh, even kind of uh, tweeting the paper to Tom Cruise. And this this kind of, this narrative is that is a bit annoying about this, which never goes away. How this is like minority report, I and mean, it's not. We are not using precognition. We are not using this individual level, and we definitely are not advocating that people be put in jail for crimes that they didn't commit, right? And it doesn't work like that. Our algorithm is about places, not about people. So let's talk about what we did uh, very briefly, and then come back again and talk about the implications. So this is a kind of example of the data that you see. Um, Uh, that that we have on the slide right now. It's, as I said, uh, event log, what happened, when it happened, what kind of crime it was, and whether uh, uh, there was immediate arrests made on that. That arrest data is not always available for other cities, so that is kind of uh, only available for Chicago. So that's the data. And uh, of course, there are many different factors that we know uh, impact crime. And it was a conscious decision, again, not to use any of those factors. And the reason was, as soon as you sit down and try to pick out that these are the factors that are implicated in crime, some of them may be, some of them might not be. For example, say you, say, say you pick a, a socioeconomic factor like poverty and say that you will use that as a predictive factor. Then you're basically saying that uh, the algorithm, or you're basically guaranteeing that the algorithm will be biased towards poorer neighborhoods. It will, will detect more crime there. So, or even if it doesn't, it will be something that would be hard to justify that there is no bias in the way you picked those initial factors. So our kind of uh, approach to that that problem was not to pick any factors. We'll just look at purely historical event data and uh, we would later compare it to how the predictions work or how the biases work out in different socioeconomic uh, neighborhoods uh, neighborhoods of different socioeconomic status. But we don't use those uh, information in making the model, and the idea is that well, it's just data; it's just historical data. If it is, if um, certain factors are driving crime differentially in different neighborhoods, then that will be imprinted in the history, and we have to just be smart in our algorithms to take to kind of bring out those patterns. So that's that's kind of the idea there, and you can see there's there's seasonality there. It changes over the years, changes over the months. We could have used all of that, the weather data, economic data, um, policy data, and there was a conscious choice of not doing that. So what we do is we break up the city into these tiny tiles of a couple of blocks across, and imagine you are sitting into one of those blocks, one of those tiles, then you'd see a time series of events, right? You'd see maybe uh, like um, like a violent crime happening, a homicide happening, today, and then maybe some other thing happening a couple of days later, and so on. So if you if you go and sit in all those tiles, you'll see a time series of events. And there's about 3,000 tiles that we have. We're talking about Chicago, the number of tiles changes, of course, uh, for different cities. And um, that results in a bunch of really event data, event streams, data streams of events. There's about 3,000 locations each tile, we kind of differentiate between property crimes and uh, violent crimes and arrests. So about three different variables, about 9,000 variables, which leads to about, even think about uh, pairwise interactions or model those pairwise interactions that leads to about 40 million, those kind of binary local models. And then imagine that you you can have memory effects. Uh, Something happening today here in my location might affect someplace else. three days later, four days later, five days later. We don't know how long, we, we don't specify that memory. So which means literally you have billions of possible this local models that you can infer and we did that. It takes about a million core hours to run for each city and we come up with this billions of these local models and, that, and those are assembled in a network which then basically makes future predictions. So it's a really, really complex model. It's not something that you can look at uh, and understand what the un- underlying connections are well machines can humans cannot uh, but that's fine because what we are going for and with this is to come up with a digital twin first a good predictor and then a digital twin which you can run experiments on right you can say if the crime rate goes up here or crime rate goes down there what would be the effect of uh, immediate crime what would be the effect on law enforcement and so on and so forth so uh, here's and of course, as I said, it's a good predictor. So you can actually do something like a crime forecast. So in this one, you see the clouds, the green clouds are, uh, the risk maps. And you can update that daily and the black dots are when the events actually happened and this predictions can be made for, again, changes from one city to the next, For Chicago you can make these predictions about a week in advance, um, on about a couple of blocks, uh, the styles are about the size of a couple of blocks. And there's a plus minus one day of uncertainty. Right. And you can see uh, how that works out, Uh, works out pretty well, actually. Um, Those are the changing real time. And you can see here, the dates changing. And again, the predictions are made a week in advance, and the red dots of actual events, right, the training was done. for this particular uh, example, the training was done on the data from about um, 2014, 16 for three years, and we are making, uh, testing the model uh, out of sample data into the, in 2017, right? So kind of to kind of give you a broad idea of, of how precise the, 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 the models are. So suppose you have 10 actual crimes in a particular location, and on average, 11, there'll be 11 predictions, out of which eight would be correct, two would be missed, there'll be two events which would be missed, and there'll be three false alarms. That's for Chicago that's what the numbers kind of work out to be that they have 93% accuracy 87% AUC about 70% specificity and about 80% sensitivity so that's that's what the numbers kind of work out to be and since you can do this about a week in advance they're actually pretty um pretty actionable so once we had that once we had this kind of a digital twin we wanted to see what can we do with it we had no intention of uh, really just making a predictive policing tool. So the idea of was always was to see how we can understand better social theory on this, or how do we change policy by doing this? So one of the things we did was to run these experiments on changing crime rates in different parts of our city in Chicago, and we also did it for other cities as well after that. What we found was very interesting. We found that, and what we found was as crime increases, uh, generally in higher SES neighborhoods, the, uh, the the arrest rate kind of tracks that. So crime increases by 10%, arrest rate goes up by 10%. But at the same time, in regions which have which are um, of lower SES neighborhood uh, status, actually the crime rate kind of crashes. So our hypothesis was that resources have been pulled away uh, to maintain, to kind of uh, give the services as Required in higher ACS neighborhoods, and uh, uh, their not so fortunate neighbors kind of uh, suffer from lack of resources. And we actually tested that, not only with our predictions directly, but in, not only with the, just in Chicago, uh, in other cities, we see this very similar effects. And also, uh, we did this in natural experiments, which, me- which means we looked at without using the model can we see a signature like that? And uh, no, we see that, um, as you can see here, the crime changes a lot from summer to winter. Uh, crime rates uh, kind of go up in summer and they go up right more or less comparably in uh, rich and poor neighborhoods. But the change, not the absolute um, enforcement, but the change in enforcement is actually quite uh, tells a different picture. It works very differently in poor neighborhoods versus uh, in uh, wealthier neighborhoods when the crime changes, right? When things go up and when you stress the system, the resources are more optimally used by um, higher SES and wealthier neighborhoods and essentially not so optimally, quite suboptimally and can see uh, like a indication of lack of resources in, um, in poorer neighborhoods. So the idea really, and I'm going to I'm going to sum up here. Uh, idea really is to when you have a complex system like this, uh, how do you model that? How you how do you uh, leverage the data effectively? So so my approach is to kind of think about this as making a digital twin. And We talked about that a little bit before as well. So we have this huge data set. We are not trying to answer specific questions when we are tr- starting to model it. Our objective is to come up with uh, a. a like a, essentially some, a model of the whole system in our machine. Once you have that, because, and, and what, why do we do that? Why do we not just answer specific questions to begin with? Uh, because, um, well, you don't always know what the questions are. You don't know what factors are actually responsible and what factors are not. Uh, in case of crime prediction, you also need to have the uh, the, it's almost necessary to have like a perception of fairness as much as it needs to be actually fair. So all of that is there. So if you, if you model the whole system, then you can actually do these experiments. You can actually tug and pull at it and perturb it and actually get insights about the system, which you will not be able to do if you just answer individual questions. So that's, that's kind of the idea. So of course, uh, I'll, I'll kind of end with this, uh, the problem of free will, right? So this is, this is a question that's also asked uh, many times when I talk about this work. So how can you ever predict what uh, someone is going to do? The problem of free will, uh, uh, if, you, if you may. And, well, the first thing is we are not predicting uh, individual actions. That's, that's the first thing. That's not, that seems to be a cop-out, though, because if we say that we can predict seven days in future what's going to happen in a narrow enough region with a narrow enough uh, boundary uh, within times, like about uh, plus-minus one day, a uh, couple of blocks, seven, week, seven days in the future, then are you not saying that you are predicting that someone maybe not telling me who is the perpetrator, but someone is going to come and, uh, well, kill someone or uh, uh, do a severe property crime? And uh, so, so what, does, what happens to the free will if you can actually predict that? And that's an interesting question to ask. But you have to remember, or you have to ask yourself, what sounds more disturbing? The fact that uh, when a murder happens, someone just wake up in, uh, woke up in the morning and uh, just decided, I'm going to go and kill someone, or that happens, all the murders, all the homicides, all the assaults that happen are just um, was decided a moment before that actually happened. All of this is random. Does that, is that more disturbing or is it less disturbing than the idea that, uh, yes, to some extent, our actions are predictable because we are embedded in a society, and our action, actions are predictable to some extent because we are interacting with other people and because of uh, our our situations around us, our society, our inputs, our interactions. That kind of constrains to some degree, not entirely, to some degree what we are going to do in future. Right? I, I, in some sense, when people talk about personalities of different people, that's what you are saying, right? That to some extent, what oh, someone's I
5: actions. <laughs>
1: Sorry, uh, I'm sorry. That, that was, was that was a good song. interrupting. <laughs> uh,
3: so that's that's yeah. I will end there. Uh, if you have questions, you can ask.
1: I'm really sorry. <laughs> At the end, it was my mistake. I I brought the person up because they raised their hand and um, yeah. Thank you so much for this really amazing presentation. And um it's really and int- all those questions are really, you know, something that come uh to one's mind when um when we think about um this type of work. Um, I I wanted to ask a question. We had the previous guest speaker here from Japan where they uh tried to predict weather more accurately and um if they can could kind of find um different notes um, uh, using you know basically the butterfly effect um, uh, model um, if they could find specific factors that would be important um, to basically manipulate the weather in a way that, for example, would maybe make storms less severe, so their theory is they they are trying to also do this artificial um doable or, um, you know, the, the artificial clone and then um, try in the future to see if they could find some specific factors that are easy to manipulate but would kind of have a, a bigger scale effect. Do you think that is something that you will also in the future be able to do with your model and find, you know, data driven, maybe um, some factors that we could do to to regulate crime thank you uh
3: yeah uh, sure we are still looking into it uh, in fact we did not uh, it was kind of uh, a lot of thinking went into it into what we uh, report in the study and how we talk about it um so there are interesting interactions between one kind of popular slash unpopular depending on who you talk about it is interaction between property crimes and violent crimes, right? So there was this um, uh, quite famous approach to crime uh, deterrence in New York City. It was tried in New York City first and then in other places in the late 90s called the broken window Policy. The idea was you uh, essentially penalize people non-trivially for trivial crimes and that brings down the crime rate. And it was justified by the idea that crime was going down. But then crime was going down globally in all cities, Everywhere in the world, in the time, we don't quite understand why. There um, are theories about it. So, uh, so yeah, so, but there, what we found are there are definitely, definitely interactions between property crimes and violent crimes. Not always in the manner that the broken window policy suggested, but there are interactions. So, it might be actually possible to have subtle changes in um, enforcement policies. doesn't involve going and putting people in jail for jaywalking. But the other subtle things you can do um, community outrage uh, outreach or uh, somehow like so it is easier to kind of manipulate rates of property crimes. It is kind of harder to manipulate the rates of violent crimes. But if uh, they are interacting with each other, those two kinds of variables, then maybe we can have policies that regulate or uh, do a better job of um, making people not commit property crimes, that might change the rates of violent crimes. Sometimes we found that actually the interaction is the other way. If you try to bring down the property crimes too much, then violent crimes go up. So that might, some really strange interaction might be going going on there where you prosecute property crimes less and that might reduce violent crimes somewhat. So all this kind of, these are, I'm just um, talking, thinking aloud to some extent. So there are a lot of these interactions that are there which can be actually used to optimize uh, policy choices and policy decisions.
1: That's a very interesting. We also had recently a aggression, like a neuroscientist that studies aggression. Um, and um, I was thinking since in the summer, the crime goes up and you know, heat is kind of also a factor if you can protect yourself from severe heat to drive up aggression you know, having maybe parks and, um, some water fountains. Right, right. So it's, you know, it's very interesting
3: is that. what's really interesting is if you ask people, tell people this, that crime goes up in winter, goes grows up in summer and less in winter, I think the immediate reaction would be, Oh, it's too cold. So the, no one is, is out the, the person, the perpetrators or the victims, none of them is out. So that's why there's no opportunity goes down. And so crime kind of goes down. So we had a way. We had a kind of very, uh, like, COVID, of all the things that it had caused killing millions of people, there has been some interesting scientific opportunities because of this global pandemic, right? One of them was uh, to to test this hypothesis. So in COVID, everyone was inside, pretty much. Much more more than there would be in winter. So did crime go down during the last two years? And the answer is no, it didn't. Uh, number of patients showing up for emergencies went down. Number of kids showing up for uh, things that uh, happened to kids, like falling down, uh, things, uh, accidents happening at home or in the playground, that went down. Um, number of diagnoses of complex diseases like cancer went down, which is interesting. Did people stop stop having cancer? Um, all that happened. But the number of people getting shot didn't go down in Chicago. Number of actually crimes rates almost were negligibly changed because of that. so that's got kind of very interesting this is a something that uh, we need to look at more and understand this and it's kind of an important problem to look at these things
1: i mean you have a right to have heat in the winter but so far i don't think in every city you have the right to have ac and right. and everything that adds to stress that's there probably anyway it's like you know getting food for the family having enough money every other stressor that comes on top will just you know explode <laughs> make you know the 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 it's the last drop um to make somebody um desperate maybe uh, that was my thought but i would like to also give other people the opportunity to speak dr Shah, dennis hillary thank you for coming and go ahead with your questions yeah thank you so much uh,
6: I mean Nishana for a wonderful I mean research that you shared with us I mean I was just curious to ask you about the authenticity of the data because we know that with the machine learning always uh, there is a uh, lots of algorithms that they just try to find the best data and this is matter really and also in the future if you want to just um, uh, join Somehow we can say merge the data between two different sets, like a psychological problems. How it might be possible? Did you think about that?
3: Yeah. So the first question is, uh, yes, of course you can you can manipulate data. But what we did was a um, couple of things. One is uh, we use only public data. The software, the the code is really uh, in uh, is on is on GitHub, so it's open. Um, It's not in the public domain in the sense that it still requires a license if you want to use it. And there's a reason for that. We don't want it to be entirely out of our control. We don't want it to be a tool just for any other. If if I put it in the public domain, I would have no control over it. But you can look at the code You can run it on the data yourself. And um, so it was not there was no no selection made. Right. So, for example, the uh, the prediction examples that I showed for Chicago 2017, it used the entire data for last three years from 2014, uh, 15, 16, and then met, uh, looked at what you can do out of sample in 2017. So there was no uh, picking and choosing. It is what it is, right? And that same thing we apply for every other city that we analyzed. Um, now for a second question, can we merge it with other data sets? So we, yes, absolutely. We can definitely merge with, with things like uh, weather, you can do that, or economic things, or all of that is fine. When you talk about merging it with psychiatric evaluations of people you see that was that's what this our this approach at least can it be done in general in machine learning tools and modeling uh, yes can be done but the approach that we are talking about um slightly problematic because the idea was not to talk about individuals we do not want to predict which individual is going to commit a crime if uh, because that has never worked out in the in the past that will not have uh perception of fairness even if what someone thinks that they have, they have no bias they, there might be implicit stuff going on if you're picking and choosing what you are putting in the algorithm then maybe that choice itself was biased in a manner that you might not even know so the our solution at least might not be the best solution but that's uh, we thought it was a good idea was to not pick and choose any features which means not look at individual features not make individual predictions and not even try to say these are the factors that drive crime, even if those are completely innocuous. And we know that they drive crime, there are hundreds of publications on it. Even then, we said, let's not do that. So,
6: so by considering all of your, I mean, explanation, if that's the case, you think that specificity and sensitivity, how it, is, it might change?
3: uh it's a case on on what like doing individuals so uh, currently th- this framework doesn't allow you to do that no, for example using there's something no individuals like
6: there. To average multiple models for merging the data and we have a new specificity and sensitivity and i was just wondering maybe you have some doubts around that
3: it will be definitely better so suppose instead of this data instead of looking at historical crime data if you do some kind of Uh, modeling use the same algorithm again remember it's just one application of a general framework for predicting rare and extreme events so you could if you could look at data streams in social media what people are discussing somehow quantize uh, look for keywords in the discussions and uh, essentially make them into time series data and model those then maybe we can get to something like where we can incorporate psychiatric data of individuals, but we really we don't probably want to go in that direction. That would be like running, uh, literally running, not quite like, like literal, it would be like literally running surveillance on large swaths of the population, which um, I do not agree with, and I don't think have the kind of uh, uh, result that you might be looking for there.
1: Yeah, thank you for your answers. Um, Denise, um, Hillary, do you have questions?
4: Oh, so very many, <laughs> so, so many. But I'll try to narrow it down to one or two. Um, so I was last year around this time, well, I guess it was September, end of September, I was a victim of a carjacking, a violent carjacking. And uh, um, I also lost my brother uh, when I was um, 16 to violent crime. He was shot um, back in New Orleans where I grew up. I'm in Houston now. and the uptick in violent crime that i cannot help but notice and not because i think i'm predispositioned to to be more aware of it or not but it's gotten to the point where you can't not notice it here and well all over the world but most like for me you know we're just houston texas it's just gotten every single day without fail um about six in the morning I'll, i'll go look over you know what the news of the day is and overnight there's been murders there has not been a single day since the start of this year where we have not had somebody violently murdered here in houston and I just don't understand why. Like what happened? I don't know if it's a psychological thing, if it's a, you know, we're going to a recession, but what can I do? Like, I mean, how can I, I want to be able to go walk my dog after dark and it's not even after dark. I mean, it's literally like midday, people are getting shot at a gas station just for their car, for their Cadillac converter. What can I do? How can I be safe without having to move to another city? And even if I move to another city, what does the future of crime right now look like? Is it safe? anywhere is there anything i can do to protect my child and my own life with both sides of staying in the house and even that's not a guarantee
3: yeah i'm so, I'm so sorry about your your loss and the fact that he was carjacked I, I haven't had a personal loss like this but i my wife's car was stolen the second day she she wasn't came in chicago oh my uh, god <laughs> it, was, it was like a it was like a 10 year old camry i don't know why anyone would steal that um it was literally we were thinking of dumping the car and it was stolen and whatever so so yeah I don't know and yes definitely crime is up there's no question about that uh, there's no sugarcoating that crime is definitely up um how do you protect yourself I don't know I mean our algorithms are I am not probably the right person to answer that uh I personally moved I, out, I guess more but, what I was uh,
4: asking than that was kind of stupid for me to say because obviously if anybody had that answer the whole world would know right now but can I if I move to another city Will it matter at all, or is this just something globally that's just going to keep happening, or is it going to? Moving out of the city is a good idea.
3: Moving out of the city is a good idea if if you can afford that, if you if your job or if your life situation admits that allows you for that. I moved out of Chicago. I mean, I I I used to stay in Hyde Park, which is a two minute walk to my uh, office, and I moved to uh, I opted for a thirty five minute drive one way each way. And the reason was um, there were there were uh, gunshots in my hallway in my in my 19th floor apartment. And uh, it's things look like when you look at it that closely, there's nothing you can do. Like, what can you do as an as an individual? Really nothing. It has to change at, at the policy level, it has to change um, the way community engagement works. Um, there are there are things that people can be, can do. People means the people who are at the uh, helm of the cities to make decisions. And that is not just putting people in jail, that doesn't always work, that makes things worse. But there's stuff that can be done. And um, sometimes it's just not done, people don't do the right things. And um, yeah, at an individual, if you ask me personally, apart from the algorithm, I would just move out of the city, which which is what I did. I have a five year old, and I was definitely not going to stay in an apartment where there's gunshots outside my outside my doorway, door in the hallway. So, yeah, But then if you move out, of course, I can't move to like two hours away, I still have to go to go to work, uh, which means that you're right outside Chicago. So now you have in a house, and then you have to think about uh, worry about break-ins and stuff. So yeah, Uh, that's why I think this is an important problem to look at and to think about how we can use this kind of tools to hopefully make things better towards better, at least.
4: How can I assist in any possible way or use any kind of influence to progress something like this going towards making change? I mean, is there anyone I can write to, anything I could donate to, any time I can spend helping at any level at all? Just I feel helpless because I feel like I'm not doing anything and I, I'm, I'm a community driven type person. I feel like there's more I, I can do or should do. I just don't know what it is.
3: I'm, I'm not the right person to ask this. I understand you, I have the same questions. Uh, but it's hard to answer that, what you can do at an individual level. Clearly, of course, we can uh, raise awareness, we can uh, see, some, there, there's some stuff, apart from predictive algorithms that we run on clusters, There are some things that people know that bring down crime, right? So if your neighborhood looks good, if your neighborhood uh, is not full, uh, it's clean, um, if you make it more green, If you have more lights out there, it's not just talking about like gentrification. It's not talking about like putting just money in it. It's a simple things like, is there more streetlights? Are there, uh, does it look like not unkept? Um, That kind of changes behavior for understandable reasons, but also kind of strange if you you don't understand like humans well, but uh, that changes behavior, that changes crime, crime rates. So that is something that we can all do as a community, I guess. Uh, but really, the, the 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 drive has to come from people who are making the decisions.
2: Yeah, I, I would like to add to that: Hillary, vote and help register people to vote, and vote down ballot, and be aware of who is in, in the area that you live in is running for absolutely every office, all the way, including school board, your sheriff, anyone, anyone that you can vote for learn about their platform what they stand for and really voting is a huge thing that you can do
3: yes awesome. that too. I, didn't to talk, that's I didn't want to talk i didn't want to talk about voting but yes that, that's really like this is supposed to be a democratic country so we should be able to pick and choose who actually uh, represents our interests rather than just do- doing politics right
2: yeah because our lives are politicized healthcare is politicized so um, we don't all have the luxury of, you know, of saying that we're outside of, of any politically, um, of any sphere of any, I'm trying to think of the word, um, politically influenced um, subject <laughs> It influences and controls all our lives. So, yeah, vote, vote, vote.
4: I followed you. Whenever uh, voting whatnot comes up, if you know of any place, anybody looking for volunteers, any services like that, hit me up, let me know, and I will... Uh, definitely give our
2: time sure I'll put a link in the chat because you can follow um, you can come to the follow the club after we vote and go also go to when we all vote and there's a lot of information about helping registering people to vote thank you so much Hillary
1: um, the, Dennis you had the question but before we go there I wanted to point out because there, were questions in the chat and also um comments to it. Uh, psychiatric illnesses and crime is not it's often conflated and it's not um it's not actually data driven that people with psychiatric disorders are more violent or um induce more crime or commit more crime. It's actually the opposite data a large body of data suggests uh, and I'm citing from a pretty good article um, it's the other way around um, usually people with mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of violent crimes than being the perpetrator so um, and this bias is also in the criminal justice where pe- people with mental illness get treated as criminals um, uh, and so on so it's it's a big Problem and I don't want this bias to be uh, supported here in, in this club. So I just wanted to add that comment and thank you um, for all the comments in general. Dennis, if you have a question, please go ahead.
7: Thanks, Katerina. Thank you doctor for this uh, really interesting paper and talk I was looking through the slides earlier. I would have been really excited to see Um, a longer time frame for observation, uh, given that Chicago has had um, migrations in terms of where people were situated, what the income levels were like uh, over historical time. I just can't help but wonder, There there are low crime neighborhoods in every city, including Chicago, or lower crime um, neighborhoods, comparatively. And it just appears to me that there's a pretty high correlation, especially if we're talking about violent crime or property-type crimes, when we're discussing different types of crimes, as Eric raised about domestic violence and things, the the metrics sort of, I think the the outcomes change a little bit, perhaps. You know, that's not part of this paper, but perhaps you could speak to it. But I just can't help but, uh, but notice that the places where people have resources, they have to be less violent. Um, that doesn't mean that if you have less resources that you should be violent necessarily. But I think there's a pretty high correlation there. Would you agree? Less, more, more resource availability equals less need for violent crime or less incidents at least.
3: Uh, Yeah. So uh, every city, as you said, as you pointed out correctly, cities have uh, neighborhoods where you can see quite um, robustly identify regions of high crimes, low crimes. The crime rates are very predictable. It doesn't matter where you look, what time period you look. They're pretty pretty predictable. So that doesn't help you in predicting stuff, though. So in, in Chicago, for example, the south side, the west side has higher crime, and that's not... Uh, that's not a controversial statement because you can just look at it you can just collect, take the data in the public domain and do an average and you can see that. Um, the question really is a couple of, few questions, right? One is why that happens. We don't try to answer the why questions in general in science, why questions are problematic, but that's a whole different segue. Uh, the other point is even if you can say that there's more crime, the crime rates are higher, doesn't let you predict anything. Uh, Saying that there will be uh, ex- there's expected to be like five homicides this weekend uh, in the South Side, Pr- probably would be, would be probably that is true. But what do you do? South Side is a big place. You can't uh, the city doesn't have enough resources, and even if they had, do you want like a 1984 esque kind of uh, implementation? We don't want that. That is not uh, that is not going to end up well uh, in the long run. So that we can't do that. So we need more precise predictions. Uh, is crime more in uh, places which have um, less resources? Yes, the, that that's one of the main challenges in doing any kind of predictive work in in, uh, in this space, right? Because there are so many confounders. Um, poverty, lower SES um, status, less resources, all of this correlate very strongly with crime. Doesn't mean people who are poor, uh, just because someone is poor, they are criminals. Of course, that's not true and that that'd be ridiculous. Um, so, but there's a correlation. These are all confounding variables, and it is extremely difficult to separate this out and figure out what is actually a real signal and what isn't. So that is that is there uh, about the question on if you have different kinds of crime. So we only looked at severe crimes. We only looked at murders, homicides, uh, like the same thing, uh, severe assaults, uh, severe property crimes, and the reason is different communities have different. Um, degrees of trust they put in law enforcement. So not all crimes are reported, obviously, that is true everywhere. But the differential in the rate of reporting, again, um, correlates with uh, the SES status of neighborhoods. So people are less likely to call 911 if they're in a minority uh, neighborhood, or if it's uh, really what that means. Um, The reviewers kind of uh, called us out on that They kept saying minority neighborhoods, because if if Basically, it means Hispanic and black neighborhoods in Chicago, at least they are essentially the same thing here. And um, so poorer neighborhoods. So the differential rates of uh, reporting, which means if we talk about domestic violence, if we talk about traffic stops. if We talk about petty crimes, uh, drug crimes, then there is this huge differential, which will uh, even if you can't show that you're predicting it. Well, you are just predicting it on top of this bias. So we wanted to see how well it does if you just look at, say, homicides, or if you just look at things which are more likely to be reported and not, be, not be, which, are, which are less likely to be not reported, right? Uh, I'm sure there are some homicides which are not reported, but I doubt if there are hundreds of murders in the, in the US right now which are just not reported. I, I, I sincerely hope that's not the case. So that was the reason why we focused on just severe crimes to kind of uh, mitigate these biases. Um, but it will be interesting to see uh what happens if you do with uh, some other things which are have a very strong reporting bias like domestic violence for example
1: yeah that thank you for mentioning that that's really interesting I read an article recently uh about um a woman that uh worked um in um in um um uh, I forgot right now the name what it is for, but uh, to protect basically children, uh, and uh, f- basically assess if if the family is safe and then assess if they need to go into foster care and so on. And um, she got very disappointed with the system because she said that um, I think in something like fifty percent of children of poor neighborhoods, um. At some point, are assessed by um, by uh, these institutions, and uh, a little bit less than that. At some point, in some foster care, and so, or the parents are in trouble, and there were like very, like horrific examples how, um, yeah, children got taken away from very, uh, you know, very regular occurrences. Just uh you know, because of their race and and where they 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 were located like when mother they were having a party in the in the park and um and the toddler ran away for a second and she ran right after and then this this person, this uh white uh woman came and called the police and said she doesn't know to take care of her kids and then she got actually. Uh, arrested by the police and so so anyways yeah i agree that that type of you know other type of data would be very biased um data sets which is um quite sad so um yeah i agree that probably a data set is quite unbiased um in the form of reporting um so yeah thank you for mentioning that and i see uh, eric you joined the stage hi
5: Yeah, hi, I just had a quick question about two, uh, so for example, here in Canada, I think uh, with the, the police uh, kind of discriminating against uh, people of color, similarly what happens in uh,
1: I think you're cutting out for me, kind of but I'm system, not
5: sure if that's Sorry, uh, to what extent does this kind of system reinforce biases so as to make police engagements more dangerous and how could we offset it or to what extent does the responsibility of a person who designs such a system extend to helping law uh, law enforcement uh responsibly or more carefully more safely use such technology thanks
3: yeah that's that's a very good question and uh definitely i mean well, one can always say that we are just coming out with theoretical stuff and we don't have responsibility and that probably again would be a cop-out so we, we we thought long and hard about this, and um, one of the differences that we have in what in our approach is, um, or rather, the way we approach this is, we have no intention of monetizing this. We are not building this as a product to monetize and just uh, essentially help police departments, no matter whether they have the right intention or not. So it's not for that. We have no intention of monetizing this. We are not. We're not thinking about this. Uh, really, neither me nor my co-authors have um, interest in that or time for that. Uh, so that, so there is that. We are not, it is not a product. It's not a product. It's a study. It has an, uh, stuff that you can use to predict, crime, maybe. But and that's one of the reasons why the, the code is not in the public domain, While it is viewable. It is usable to anyone, but we can actually stop people from using it if you wanted to. So, So there's that so that's that's where we can do but then this is an open paper right what happens if someone reads it and comes up with their own implementation of the code uh, of the the algorithm and then just uh, runs it without telling us and how would we ever know so there's always that problem with enforcing software copyrights and stuff like that Um, but the hope is here that this would be used uh, I hope it is. It is. It is going to be useful. That's one. And the second one. And the second hope is that it will be used in a manner that we envision. That it will be used um, to help design better policy, rather than just trying to predict where there will be a crime and just send everyone there. That that isn't going to be uh, not a not the intended use of this. And that will probably not work out very well as well, because that will change the system itself. And then if you have to keep. Yeah, there are lots of issues with that. So bottom line is we hope that, or rather we have thought about this, we are not uh, planning to offer this as a product to, to law enforcement. The idea is to kind of interact with policymakers to optimize policy, kind of see what the outcome of different policies would be in a quantitative way rather than going by gut feeling. So that's really the intended use of this is.
5: That's fantastic. Uh, I I love to hear that because I often have that concern and you know uh, when these systems were first introduced I think uh, a a little while ago some police uh, agencies really got on board and they actually, actually saw increases in arrests and other things but were they actually addressing the core of what drove the crime or were they just showing up and then finding an excuse to arrest people just because of human psychology that kind of fell apart. So I'm really happy that your work is more study focused rather than commercial based because I think this problem really warranted more study before it was ever implemented. So thank you for uh, sharing your work here today. Thank you.
3: Okay. You've maybe you stay- uh, try to wrap
1: <laughs> this up uh, yeah, I wanted to ask um you've been staying here for an hour and twenty minutes, so um I wanted to give you basically a way out <laughs> so
3: yeah, way. so uh, maybe uh, maybe if there's a, one more question, I can take one more question um I have to go to yeah i think I can still hear my daughter and she should be in bed by now, so
2: yeah I see oh sorry i' I'm, I'm just noticing in the in the chat that there is um Somebody is asking about Palantir, which has been on my mind the entire time and, and the bias inherent in, in Palantir, even so much so that some companies are not using that any longer. That was a question from Blackheart is asking if we can address that. Uh,
3: I am not super familiar with I'm like peripherally aware of this, but what is it that Palantir does? Like, what is the selling point of that?
2: Uh, facial- like big
3: Data analytics or do they actually do some more something in crime as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, with crime, um, facial recognition technology, and then the data that shows that black people and people of color are more likely to be mistaken for another- yeah. Right, yeah. right, no, because- right, yeah, right,
3: yeah. Right, yeah. now no, I remember. So, so see, people, we are, we are legitimately concerned about this kind of AI technologies, machine learning technologies that are coming online, right? Now, it is going to happen, whether you like it or not. I mean, you can move out, I don't know, to uh, Wyoming, I guess, and just live with uh, in a ranch, by a ranch somewhere where no one ever goes, and maybe maybe you can avoid that there. Uh, but unless you do that, um, this is going to happen. It, all these technologies are going to come online. Things are exponentially becoming cheaper, exponentially becoming more powerful. Uh, the things that we can do on a tiny chip uh, is, is kind of blows my mind. When I just look at it for after a few years, it blows my mind. Oh, we can do that now. So, uh, so it's going to happen. So what is it that we should do? First, of course, as Victoria was saying, we have to make sure that policies are in place which prevent abrogation of individual rights. I, I'm a big believer in that, um, and we should all be. <laughs> this is this is America. But other than that, it's like it's going to happen. It's a, a comp- this kind of companies like uh, people will have access. Corporate people will have access to technologies. Uh, agencies and the government will have acts. Will have will have the capability to surveil. Um, the populace more than ever at like ways that we have never, perhaps not even conceiving right now. So what do we do about it? Is there anything we can do? So one approach would be to try to find technologies or try to create technologies that democratize AI, right? Um, I won't say that this approach that we're talking about here does like completely does that, but it does that to some extent because it's an open code anyone can use. The data is in the public domain. So if you have access to uh, a moderately powerful computing setup and not something like a university cluster or a Department of Energy cluster, you don't need that. You, don't, you probably need a couple of laptops to actually run this. Take a long time, but you'll still do it. So you can actually run the models. You can actually verify uh, if there is bias. You can use this to audit the state. So that's something that we should be aware of. We should create technology that is not uh just usable by the corporate the corporations and the government the state that is but can be actually used by anyone who can who wants to use it and use it as a means to audit um the state um so that's one kind of a more general approach to it and other than that the kind of the biases that show up in uh, this kind of uh ai many kind of off-the-shelf ai tools it happens one of the reasons, reasons it happened is because people are picking and choosing the features that, of the data that is pointed out to be important during training. The algorithm itself is not biased. It doesn't, It is not a human thing. It has no biases. The bias comes in because someone is training the algorithm and they either have implicit biases or they think these are unbiased characteristics and they are not sometimes even they might creep in in ways that is almost impossible for the person the data scientist who is keying in those features can imagine so again one good way of avoiding that would be to not start with a chosen fixed set of features so that's what this approach does, but understandably that would be harder to do in some applications, like when you're trying to do uh, image processing and stuff uh, yeah, but the, that is the way I would uh, try I, I would at least uh, urge people in machine learning the researchers and data scientists think about like implement, uh, implementations in those li- on those lines.:
1: yeah, thank you for that answer. Uh, we will say to you. Um coming year and uh for your work um thank you for doing this basically and um it's been a pleasure having you here and um um, and thank you everyone for asking great questions and um yeah i hope um you know you have a lot of funding in the future and uh, maybe help um policy makers um to data-driven decisions. <laughs>
3: yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was great. And uh, if you and if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me. And um, yeah, I, I love hearing from people. So uh, yeah, and yeah. thank you, thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, and uh, if you want to ever come back with um, another project, um, some some updates, uh, please uh, feel always free to come back. And thank you so much again okay great uh thank you everyone for coming follow the club if you like uh discussions like these and and rooms like these tomorrow we will have dr whitehead um where he uses new biosensors um uh made out of plant hormone receptors which will be really interesting tools for um health and medicine so uh, and and also other applications so um Thank you, Ishanu, again. Um, I'm also going to bring my daughter to bed. I wish you all the best for that one. And um, yeah, uh, have a good night. Thank you, everyone.
2: Well, thank you, everyone. Oh, my gosh.
1: I'll close the room in three, two, one. Thank you, everyone.